0: This is the IBJ podcast for the week of June 26th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. At the end of this week... Brian Payne will finish a 23-year run as CEO and president of the Central Indiana Community Foundation and president of the Indianapolis Foundation. Now you can think of CICF as an umbrella organization that includes the Indianapolis Foundation and many other foundations and charitable funds that make nearly $100 million in grants every year to help not-for-profit groups in Central Indiana. It cultivates and supports private funders who wanna make a big impact on their communities, and it provides leadership on major issues that affect the area. Over 23 years of Payne's leadership, the total assets of the CICF collective organization have grown from $338 million to more than $1 billion. For that alone, Payne is widely considered one of the most influential not-for-profit leaders in the city, but he also, is the founder and primary creative force behind the $63 million Indianapolis Cultural Trail that loops downtown, links its six cultural districts, and has become a major driver of economic development along its path. Payne conceived of the trail, raised funds, lobbied city leaders, and otherwise championed the project for several years on his own, until CICF and the Indianapolis Foundation formally became involved in the mid-2000s. Payne further cements his reputation for taking on big challenges when in 2018, CICF formally changed its mission to support racial equity and inclusion and to dismantle institutional racism in central Indiana. Now, this was 2018, two years before these principles entered the national conversation and sparked a full-scale reckoning in corporate America. At CICF, the new focus on fighting racism and creating opportunity for people of color led to changes big and small, from anti-racist training for its staff and cultivating new vendors, to structural shifts that affected which programs and initiatives it decided to fund. The new focus was received positively by many and was criticized by others. As you'll hear, CICF is now trying to develop metrics to determine the amount of progress it's making. Brian Payne is our guest this week, first explaining why he has decided to retire from full-time work, what he plans to do next, and how CICF will change once he leaves. We also discuss the impact of the cultural trail, why CICF decided to change its mission in 2018, and the challenge of measuring its progress on a goal as large as dismantling institutional racism in Central Indiana. Here's our conversation it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast brian Payne, president and ceo of central indiana community foundation and president of the indianapolis foundation thank you for making time and inviting me
1: to your offices today now mason thank you for asking me i'm very excited to speak with you how old are you i am 64 okay this podcast is filled with
0: people in their 70s who are still doing what you know they set out to do. Mm-hmm. So
1: strangely, sixty-four seems kind of young to me <laughs> yeah. to be retiring. Why retire now? You know, there's a lot of reasons why I'm retiring, and, and and actually, Gene Temple, who's been one of my mentors. If you don't know Gene, if your audience, some a member of your audience doesn't know Gene, he was the you know founding dean of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at IU IUPUI. He ran the Center of Philanthropy before that. Gene is a um, national figure in fundraising and especially how to do it by the book, you know, how to really do it in the classic way, which he makes work. And sometimes I can make work. And sometimes I have to go rogue to make my own style work. But Gene uses, and it wasn't Gene who told me, it was Una Osili, who also admires Gene, uh, that Gene doesn't talk about retirement. He talks about preferment. He's going in, he went into preferment, which means you get to do what you prefer to do. And, you know, so I'm not fully retiring, but I'm going to uh, – so I've I'm, I'm got a gig at IU, uh, the O'Neill School, both in Bloomington and, uh, and at IU Indianapolis, the new name. Oh, very good. Um, yeah. I'm doing some executive coaching. Um, but what was your question, Mason? Uh, oh, why am I retiring so early? Yeah. Um, there's about 10 reasons. The number one reason is that my wife for the last five years has been an actor in New York City. And I get to spend you know somewhere between four days and nine days a month in New York City living with my wife, and she comes back to Indy quite often. You know, one doesn't but just I,
0: become an actor in New York City. I mean, how did well, that? Come that's out? a whole podcast.
1: <laughs> you should have uh, both of us on. Uh, some someone should because her journey into being an actor in New York City. She's younger. I won't tell you. She's significantly younger. We're in second marriages. I mean, not crazy younger, like. 13 years younger. I just gave her... See, now I just gave her... I just gave her age. <laughs> and her. She looks younger than that. So the biggest reason is I want to live with my wife more. Now, I'm not moving to New York full-time, but I'll have flexibility to spend more than half the time in New York, probably on average 17 days a month and 13 days a month in Indianapolis. This is my home base. This is where my friends are. This is where my community is. I'm not giving up on my community. I love my community. But I also... Love New York. I told Gail, my wife, that if she was a professional actress in Fargo, North Dakota, our marriage probably wouldn't be working. But uh, I'm happy to go to New York and hang out with her. So the timing has not been awesome for her, but she uh, she's, very, she's extremely talented, extremely hardworking, extremely courageous, and she is making progress throughout, even through strikes and pandemics. And uh, she's doing well, and I'm I want to be hanging out there with her. Now, you have a relationship, uh, or maybe you can tell me what the relationship
0: is, with a district theater here on Massachusetts Avenue, which everyone would remember as Theater on the Square. How did that work exactly? How, How have you become involved?
1: Yeah, so when the Indianapolis Foundation, CICF, gave one of the grants that let Theater on the Square actually buy that building. And they were in that building a long time, renting. And when we were doing the cultural trail, it's like, you know the cultural trails. I you mean, know, we were very confident the cultural trail was going to make Mass Avenue and other cultural districts mm-hmm. very successful in a way that they weren't in 2000. And it, and it's like, what's the collateral damage? I mean, we were very careful about gentrification and displacement where apartments were. We 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 cared deeply about that. There has we we've been pretty pleased that there hasn't been. A tremendous amount of displacement. There's been some, but uh, less than most people would think. In Fountain Square and uh, Fletcher Place, been some. displacement would mean where, where like, like where, the, where the prices go. You like you you like the cultural trail goes in and creates and it's created billions of dollars of economic development. So what happens sometimes apartments like sometimes houses become mega houses. Sometimes empty lots become very expensive high rise apartments. What does that do to the market? What does that do to the neighborhood? It raises prices in the rest of the neighborhood. And then some people were renting and can't afford to rent there anymore, especially artists and people of color. And and also, you know, you might have owned a home and and now you can't afford the property taxes, so you have to move or sell. That's displacement. So now, you know, now since 2017, when I've gone on my own, my own personal, and CICF has gone on its own racial equity learning journey, I have a much deeper knowledge of how this affects people of color. These, you know, this kind of economic change, economic development change. Um, I've done a lot of studying. It's a passion of mine. I'm, I'm very knowledgeable about how economic development helps some people and harms others. And my overall perspective is like, we need economic development, but how can we do it in a way where the people that are being harmed, that their harm is being mitigated? And and we knew, like, here's the irony, is that when we knew if we took the cultural trail, why, why did we want to take the cultural trail to Fountain Square? Because the artists had made Fountain Square cool, but it was always one step forward, maybe two step forwards, one step back in, in the 90s. And how do we you – know, we could take what the artist did and really take it to another level. But are we going to take it to another level? The artists can't afford to be there anymore. And to some degree, that's happened. And And there's a whole philosophy about, well, that's okay. I mean, some people think that's okay because then artists will go and and be, be the fertile seed for the next place. I want to get back to your theater in the script. Yeah, that's right. So we gave a grant – Not the only grant, other people did too, but we gave a significant grant for Ron Spencer, who founded Theater on the Square, to buy, for Theater on the Square, to buy that building on Mass Avenue because we knew the, we were building, put the cultural trail into Mass Avenue. And we thought, boy, that building is going to go way up in value. And and whoever owns that, Uh, they won't, like Ron won't be able to afford the rent. So let's get him to buy the building. He doesn't have to pay property taxes, he's a not for profit. Fast forward, Ron retires. And you know, it's one of those things like no one could make that theater work like Ron because Ron was willing to do it out of his life's passion and not he never made a decent salary. And who's gonna come in and say, Oh, I'll take over for Ron, but oh, I'm only gonna, you know, I'm gonna take a vow of poverty while I run, you know, theater on mm-hmm. the square. So it was failing. It was failing. They weren't paying you know employment taxes. We were afraid. A bank, a local bank, had a $20,000 second mortgage on it. We thought a bank could foreclose at any moment, sell it for a million dollars, make a restaurant out of it. And we needed that to be a theater. We wanted that to be a theater. It's a theater district. It's very important to the Indy Fringe. You lose the, you lose the district theater now, Theater formerly a theater in the square, and Indy Fringe loses two venues to do the Indy Fringe Festival. We basically took it over. Indianapolis Foundation, CICF, we've put in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I became the, the founding board chair, mm. and, and then we renamed it the District Theater. We created a new board, had some carryover from the old board. And basically, CICF, the Indianapolis Foundation, own that theater now. And I'm still on the board. One of my my most important post semi-retirement preferment role in community right now is to be the lead fundraiser with Pauline Moffitt, our executive director or managing director at the district, to raise, to finish a, a fundraising goal of $3.5 million to build the Black Theater ecosystem, give it resource it, resource it, and to resource a new professional actors equity union theater in residence at the district theater. So, we have to raise three and a half million. We've raised 2.6. Wow. So, as a volunteer, I've got to play a huge role in raising another 900,000. I'm aware, by the way, it's probably easier to raise money when I'm the CEO of CICF (laughs) than when I'm just another volunteer. But that'll be my challenge. So, when you're saying you are raising, you and Pauline are, are raising,
0: that is apart from your CICF duties. You're not raising it as a project of CICF. It is
1: a project of CICF, but I'm not sticking it to Lorenzo Esters or Jennifer Bartenbach, my successors, because, you know, that's been my passion project. Been able to, you know, it's a, it's a great privilege of what my job has been. I mean, I have to balance, you know, what's good for the community. It's not about me, but if there's a match that it's good for the community, my board thinks it's good for the community, and it's a passion of mine, that, that's magical Sometimes I have passions of mine, and the board doesn't think it's a a priority, and then it doesn't happen, you know, or we can't get the partnerships, and it's just a Brian Payne passion project that never happened. There's been a lot of those, by (laughs) the ways. Um, But this one, the board has been very supportive, so it has been both my passion project. I work a lot of hours on it, kind of outside my CICF role, but- the Annapolis Foundation and CICF have been supportive. They've given a lot of money. It allowed me to give grants from the Annapolis Foundation. So it's both. It's both a CICF project and a passion project of mine and others on the board. But as I retire, there's no indication that it's going to be a passion project of my successors. And I don't want them to have to clean up after me. So now it becomes my passion project Mostly outside of CICF. Gotcha. Okay, with with a good
0: amount of the money already,
1: yeah, already uh, raised. You
0: mentioned your successors. Uh, tell me again
1: who they are. So we've reorganized, and we're what we're doing. You know, the Indianapolis Foundation is one of the oldest community foundations in the world. It created CICF in partnership with the Hamilton County Community Foundation. And it's a long story about why that happened, but Indianapolis Foundation created CICF with the Hamilton County Community Foundation. And yet over the years for the last 20 not just me, even before I got here, for the last 25 years, CICF had become the brand for Marion County. And now what we're doing is we're reorganizing and we're giving the Indianapolis Foundation kind of more independence. But, you know, it has the grant-making money. It's always had the grant-making money. So we're giving the Indianapolis Foundation the role of community leadership and grant making for Marion County. That'll be under the Indianapolis Foundation brand once again. CICF is gonna be running this collaborative that is the Indianapolis Foundation, CICF itself, the Hamilton County Community Foundation, the Women's Fund of Central Indiana, and something that we created about four years ago called Impact Central Indiana, which is a social impact investing fund. And so there's really five component parts of this philanthropic collaborative. And CICF Jennifer Bartenbach, the new CEO there, is to run that collaborative, do all the finance and operations, HR, communications, donor services. Indianapolis Foundation will be raising money for its projects. It'll be doing the grant making. It will be doing community leadership projects in Marion County. And Hamilton County Community Foundation will do the community leadership, some fundraising for projects, grant making in Hamilton County. So Lorenzo Esters, formerly the chancellor of Ivy Tech for Central Indiana, is it will be the president of the Indianapolis Foundation. He reports to the board of the Indianapolis Foundation. Jennifer reports to the board of CICF. There's overlap on the board, Mm. but Jennifer does not report to Lorenzo and Lorenzo does not report to Jennifer. Oh, fascinating. So it's a collaborative. So what is
0: this job like? Like if you had to leave uh, Jennifer a pie chart, the shows like how much of your, how much time of your week is spent doing A, B, C, and D? Mm how would that look
1: well i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to you about how it looked for me it'll look different for jennifer and lorenzo oh sure yep yep. yeah because like they're taking i mean the things that i had to be involved in everything and now they get to split up the everything into two parts by the way when i got hired and was involved in everything you know we were a 350 million dollar organization not a billion we didn't do community leadership now we have eleven community leadership projects just in Marion County. We didn't do the cultural trail. I, you know, the, the organization didn't do anything like the cultural trail. I spent twelve years part time working on the cultural trail. So, so it's going to be different now than when I, and it was different when I got hired. And you know, the thing about a community foundation is you can do a lot of different things and prove that it's good for the community. And you know, I brought. Certain passions, certain expertise, certain creati- creativity and innovation, Lorenzo and Jennifer will bring their own and, were, and it will definitely change. And what I thought was the most important, they'll think something else is the most important and, you know, times change. But, you know, I spent, a, a, my favorite thing to do in my job as it evolved over 23 years was envision how do we take Indianapolis to the next level of being a great American and a great international city. How do we become a great city for quality of life for the people who live here? And how do we build a bigger, better image so that we can attract the talent to maintain? But over the years, it's like I've I've become more interested in how do we make this a great city for the people who actually live here every day then how do we tra- attract people? I mean, it's important, but if you live here already, I care more about you than if you live in California and you're looking for some place to come. Yeah, if you have something to add and you have the right values, yeah, come join me. I'm in California. I was very welcomed when I was here. But like, I'll tell you, I'll pick on Charlotte, okay? Charlotte has been an economic juggernaut or Nashville has been one for the last 10, 12 years in a way that sometimes we admire that we were more like that. Well, guess what? Charlotte is a great community. It's vibrant. Nashville is very vibrant. I would tell you if you asked the people who've lived in Nashville, if you did a survey of people who've lived in Nashville 15 years or longer, they don't like Nashville as much now as they did seven years ago. Because it's gotten more expensive, it's gotten crazier, more tourists, it's over-touristed. You know, the unique, authentic music scene in downtown Nashville is not as authentic anymore. It's more generic. It's o- it's over the top. It's too much. It's not authentic. They've lost their authenticity to some degree. To a, to a, if I was in Nashville, to a concerning degree. Charlotte has become a great place for former New York City financial professionals to live in Charlotte. Life's a lot easier. The big money they make goes a lot farther, though not as far when they moved there seven years ago because it's now a lot more expensive. But if you're a black or a Latino person in Charlotte, you know what? You haven't seen your pro- your um, wages go up and your property tax has gone up if you were lucky enough to own a home. Most of them didn't. Or your rents have gone way up. Everything's gone way up and you haven't benefited at all. But the New Yorkers who moved into Charlotte are living like kings and queens. But if you're Third generation Charlotte, black person, Charlotte is not as nice for you. It is way too expensive. It is You don't feel like you belong. You've lost a lot of your culture. You've probably, your neighborhood's been gentrified. Your friends have, if you haven't been displaced, your friends have, you know, maybe your black barbershop that you love to go to down the street, that no longer exists in that neighborhood in Charlotte because it's been priced out. I was just in this conversation with a friend at the Indy Chamber, and we both agreed that slow growth is the best growth. Booming growth, not the best. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I care. You know, it's been an evolution for me. I care deeply about black and brown neighbors and black and brown neighborhoods. How do they get an improved quality of life without the gentrification or displacement? And one of the things we've learned is... The best way to work on that is to ask them what they want and then try to help them resource getting what they want and letting them be in charge of how it happens.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right. We're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and my interview with Brian Payne, who's about to retire from his leadership role at Central Indiana Community Foundation. So in 2018, the collaborative change is collective mission. Um, I think this relates to what you're saying. To making equity and anti-racism in Central Indiana a multi-generational commitment. I mean, something that will take decades and decades to achieve. So the mission, I'm I'm quoting here, and I don't know if this is still current, to mobilize people, ideas, and investments to make this a community where all individuals have equitable opportunity to reach their full potential, no matter place, race, or identity.
1: That's absolutely current. What was it before? Um, Our mission statement before, let me see if I can remember it. It was pretty catchy. It was uh, something that we changed when I got hired back in 2000. Um, and it was something like uh, Central Indiana Community Foundation inspires, serves, and I'm, I'm blowing it, but it's basically inspires and serves philanthropy and leadership and service in Central Indiana. It. So it was all about philanthropy, leadership and service. And, and we inspire it and we, you know, we sustain it or whatever and you know and that was a that was a pretty good mission statement it was small it was catchy it made sense but we learned over the years really starting in a journey that kind of got was a catalyst in 2015 and by the way it was through research it was all this national research that was coming out 2015 26 2017 that said upward mobility in america in 2015 was at 115 year low so right so you know my dad used to talk about the American Dream as a kid I was like you know the American dream was a big deal to me if I did the right things if I worked hard if I got went to school if I was disciplined if I you know I could like achieve I could achieve more than my dad uh, economically culturally whatever and I had and I did I was lucky to do that but statistically now our kids are not going to achieve what we this is the word that like If you're 15 years old, you're really the first generation that you're unlikely to do as well as your parents. And then guess what we learned through all the data? If you're a black or brown kid, oh, my God, the chances, the statistical chances of being highly upward mobile are minuscule. I mean, it's, it's harder for everybody. But if you're black or Latino, it is statistically minuscule. That is tragic for a for a country that says you know American exceptionalism. You can be any you know you can be anything you want to be if you work hard. Well, you know what? No, the systems really aren't allowing that anymore. Um, they probably never really fully allowed that. If you're black or brown, we just didn't count black or brown people in our in our statistics as much. That's what changed us. So, learning about that. So, functionally, so
0: the the mission changes. But functionally, what, how did what happens here in this building change? What changed about your operations?
1: So we made sure that especially, first and foremost, black people were at the leadership table. And I say first and foremost, black people, because our black community here is 29% in Indianapolis. And in central Indiana, it's the largest community of color. They've been here. They're the largest. They've been here the longest. And they've suffered the most. We also care about our Latino community. We also care about our Asian community. But the black community is the largest, who has been here the longest, who has suffered. I mean, you don't want to get into the suffering Olympics. Uh, every, you know, a lot of people have suffered, but there's generations of families that have lived in Annapolis who are black, who've never got a break, whose systems have worked against them. So that's where we first said, that's our first. Now we have, the last two or three years, we've done a really good job of making deep authentic relationships with the Latino community. And we're starting to do that with the Chin, the Burmese community on the south side. We're starting to think about how to do that with our Indian community, with the rest of our Asian community, but you have to start somewhere. And we started with the black community. And what we've learned through data, through deep, deep studies, through lots of work. I mean, I, we talk about race here every day at CICF and the Annapolis Foundation and Hamilton Hamlet County Community Foundation. What's changed about our work is we have put people of color in the leadership rooms and listen to them. They are the experts, like, you know, I'm a white guy who knows a lot about cities and I, I know how to make it, I know about quality of life. That's one of my areas of expertise that's still applicable to downtown. What I know isn't, I mean, what I know isn't really that applicable to HaVille, but what I, how I can help HaVille is I have networks to where I can raise money in partnership with people from HaVille, resource their knowledge and expertise, their genius, and I can resource that and get out of their way. In 2020,
0: CICF formally launched a plan to dismantle systemic racism in central Indiana, in addition to reemphasizing this uh, commitment to promoting opportunity, equity, and inclusion in every aspect of our community.
1: That is such a huge goal. Why take on something that big? So one correction is the timing is we actually, you guys at the IBJ did a full page, front page article on our new strategic plan on July 1 of 2018. And then we went public at at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, now Gainbridge, in front of 2,000 people and said this on April 11th, 2019. Now those dates are important to us because you know, we're not a Johnny-come-lately after George Floyd's murder. We were doing this work two years before George Floyd. Specifically,
0: died. the concept of dismantling racism or dismantling
1: systemic, systemic, racism. systemic
0: racism that was in 2019. Yes. That, that, okay, that was yes. part of the state yep. platform. Yes, it was. Okay,
1: great. And our knowledge has grown over the years. Yes, that is a huge, huge issue. Why, are, you know, why, there's a question, why did we think we could take that on? Or? Yeah, sure. We know how challenging this is. and But you know what? What we learned through the data and through history and through deep learning is that there are these, like, we can all, like, first of all, we put race back on in the, like, we're really proud that we put race and racism in 2018, 20, especially 2019, in the community conversation that had never really existed. I mean, I, I can only speak since 1993. That's when I moved here, you know, in 1993. I can't imagine that it existed since the 60s in the civil rights movie meeting, the civil rights movement, when, you know, like... Was this community ever, as a community theme, ever talking about race or racism? And it's not just Indianapolis. America doesn't talk about that or didn't talk about that. They start talking about it in, in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered, and we start talking about it a couple of years earlier. So we put race and racism on the community table that had to be talked about because the data, new data, was being very clear about how people of color in our community. Just are not going to get a fair shot. Here's a great analogy. the monopoly analogy, okay If wealth is created through land acquisition, okay and black people and families were forbidden from owning land until what I don't know you know they were promised land after the Civil War, but they the, you know that promise wasn't usually delivered. so you know people black people probably didn't start really accumulating land until uh, the late 1800s, and not at a scale, by the way. Well, white families accumulated land, you know, you know, decade, uh, year, uh, centuries before. So here's the monopoly analogy. You're black, I'm white. We play monopoly. Oh, guess what? The rule is I get to go around the monopoly board twice before you get to start. You're never going to win. You're going to go bankrupt every time because I'm going to buy all the prime properties in my first two rounds around the Monopoly table. I don't care how good of a Monopoly player you are. What a, I don't care what a genius you are. And it would be about one out of a thousand times that you rolled the dice just perfectly and I rolled the dice horribly. One out of a thousand games that maybe you could win. Mm-hmm. One out of a th- thousand. That's what happens. There's one out of a thousand black people, who, you know, out of the thousand that are working their tails off and doing all the right things. There might be one who rolls the dice and makes it big and then we hold and then too often society holds up that one person say see it can happen that's what we're working against so you set the goal to dismantle
0: systemic racism how do you know whether or not what you're doing is working
1: yeah so that's that's the question everyone's asking us right now and 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 it's really challenging first of all we have you know how do we have metrics we just spent we just signed a contract for two hundred and twenty thousand dollars to CRISP, a division of the Indiana University Public Policy Institute, so I'm horrible with acronyms, but it's about social policy. It's about equity at this, this subset of Public Policy Institute. We just signed a contract for $220,000 because they have to go out and, and actually get the research. The research doesn't exist. So what we're trying to measure actually is we're trying to measure, like we believe that If there's not more equitable power, you're not going to be able to dismantle systemic racism. If it's only white people in charge all the time, they don't know by themselves how to dismantle systemic racism. We need everybody at the table. We need all the perspectives. So that means we need more black people and Latino people and others in power. So we're going to measure how are we helping create a sharing of power, a more equitable sharing of power. Not that we're going to take power away from white people. This, How do we lift up the power and the voice and the influence of people of color? And we're going to measure that over time about how that power works. How many people are in the C-suite that are people of color? How many people that are in city government? Actually, our city council's pretty diverse. That's really good. Of course, everything they wanna do gets whacked at the state legislature level where there is not very good diversity, but we're gonna measure, but that's gonna take time and it's gonna take a lot of money because that data doesn't exist. Now, do we know that grants are going to uh, organizations led by people of color who have a feedback loop to their neighborhoods? Yes. Is there better work being done because of that? Yes. Is there more equitable work being done in neighborhoods because of that? Yes. And we can show that. And that's work that you are doing. That's work that we're doing right. and encouraging others to do. OK.
0: So, I mean, you you track that. You can track that and show. Right. This is where the money is flowing now.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, And, and well, one of the things why we're behind this black theater company so fully is that we got to change the narrative. We have to have narrative change because the narrative that we have in our heads, you know, the narrative about people who are poor is so negative and and so biased. And it's actually, you know, is it true for some of the poor people? Yeah, of course. There's always, you know, there's some truth to it. But, you know, I don't know what the statistics are. But these narratives we have about how poor people are lazy. Oh, my gosh, you have to work your tail off just to survive, The majority are not lazy. They're working three jobs. Working three jobs is not lazy, but we have this narrative that poor people are lazy. Low-income people are lazy. We have to change the narrative. That's what Matthew Desmond's trying to do with his book, Poverty by America. Not in America. It's by America. It's created by America. So guess what? A great way of um, changing the narrative is have a black theater company where black people get to decide what stories get told and how they're going to tell them. So you mentioned
0: the question about measurability is something you get asked a lot
1: yeah. now. Did
0: you encounter a lot of skepticism when you made dismantling systemic racism a mission?
1: You know, we got a lot of support at the beginning. Yeah, some people are skept- Yeah, I think the skepticism is like, you know, it, p- people thought people who were inclined to think that racism is a problem in America. What's that? 52% of America? OK, I don't know, 51% of America, we're kind of divided, I hear, um, about everything, including that. But the people who are inclined to believe that racism is a problem in America ame- were so supportive of our boldness and even putting it on the table. So we got a couple of years just passed from them and we're doing a lot of work, but they like they just thought putting on the table was a huge accomplishment. And, but now we're what? We're four years after that. And, and so the question is starting to come okay, you guys put that on the table. That was awesome for the people who are inclined to think it's a problem. We got a lot of pushback who said from the people, including people who had funds with us, who took their funds out because now we're becoming anti capitalist in quotes, or we're becoming that's, that's what they said, that's not what I say, or are there or that we're too political. And it's like, you know, if wanting equity is too political, then what does that say about the fact that you think it's political? It's like it shouldn't be a party, a political party decision. It should be an American decision that we want a fair and just society. I thought that's, that's what yeah. we stood for. Well, from a practical standpoint,
0: our like goals are supposed to be supposed to be time sensitive. They're supposed to be measurable. They're supposed to be attainable. Yeah. And when you have something that big, when you're trying to solve a problem that is, I mean, really baked into the genetic code of culture. Uh, I can see where people eventually are going to start asking questions. Yes. We're like, practically, how do you
1: do this? And how do we know it's working? Right. So, so yes, I agree with that. And it's it's rational. That's fair. So we said, I said on that day, uh, you know, in 2019 on April 11th, I said, look, I'm an optimist. I'm hoping we can dismantle systemic racism in central Indiana in 50 years. And it doesn't take 75 to 100. But people need to know are we doing s- things toward that 50-year goal that show real progress? So you know, what is our five-year metric? What is our 10-year metric? We're working on that right now, but it's gonna take five years to get the To I mean, we can put out a metric, and we are, we're working on it, but we have to go out and get the data, which doesn't exist, so we have to go out and do the surveys and pay for that. And and we'll have a five-year metric here pretty soon, and then we'll. But and in five years, we'll know are we moving the needle toward that metric? But you know, it, 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 we're not going to have it tomorrow. And by the way, uh, one of my you know pet peeves are people who are you know. I love our corporate leaders. I love the you know the business community generally most of the time. But you know, when they say, "What are your metrics?" And I say, you know, it's really hard when it comes to changing systemic racism. But let me see if I can guess your metrics here in the next 30 seconds. Oh, profit, net, you know, revenue. Oh, maybe if you're really crazy, market share. Did I get them right? Yeah. Okay. So I just, I know your metrics now in 30 seconds. Let's see if you can help me decide what the metrics are on dismantling systemic racism. Or in the health, in the in the health field, what, what do you think those should be, and how do we get at them? That is a year, or two year, long process because even if the met, even if we know what we want, we can't get the data, and if you can't get the data, you can't measure your metric, and the data doesn't exist, and maybe we can't get it, so then we have to dumb down our metric, and we don't want to dumb down our metric. We want meaningful metric. It takes a long time. It's not easy. But equity, inclusion,
0: anti-racism, these will remain priorities of the organization
1: after you're here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the board is 100% committed to that. It's a mission. We didn't, it wasn't a program, wasn't a Brian Payne-led program. It was a change in mission. The board searched with that in mind, well, you know, frankly, you know, after a hundred and Seven years of existence where only white men have been, the, you know, CICF's only 25 years old. It was created in 1997. Indianapolis Foundation goes back to 1916. Only white men have been the CEO or president of the Indianapolis Foundation. And everyone, I thought so, the board thought so, everyone thought this is a time for that to change. Lorenzo is a black man. He'll be the first non-white man to lead the Indianapolis Foundation in 107 years. That's just one indication of how serious the board is about this commitment to dismantling systemic racism and creating, you know, a, really creating a community where every individual has a, an equitable opportunity. And the
0: collective-wide, that will remain the guiding principles
1: it is. of CIC is, collective-wide. Right. If you want to be in the collaboration, you have to buy into the mission of an, creating equitable communities. How that's operationalized in Hamilton County or the Women's Fund will be different on a day-to-day basis than the Indianapolis Foundation or CICF, but the mission is the same for everybody. If for some reason
0: you had to stay on for another year,
1: what is the thing you would want to finish? I want to finish, you know, I I mean, I wish I had finished raising the money of the black theater company and the black ecosystem because- Again, that's such a passion project. I mean, that's that combines my, my passion about racial equity and my passion. And my early, my first half of my career was theater. The second half of my career was community foundations. That is the perfect merging of my whole career. And so I'm going to finish that outside of CICF. But I wish I, if I, it'd be easier to finish within CICF. And if I had another year, that would be a thrill to finish it within the CICF structure. We, we're in the middle of uh, of building out another 10, 12, 15 miles of trails in Black and Latino communities. That's a passion of mine, too. Trails not part of the cultural past- trail. It's not part of the cultural trail. Yeah. It's called Connected Communities. It's other trails. We just uh, did a ribbon cutting of the b Trail in Havel. So it's other trails connecting Black and, and, and Latino neighbors and neighborhoods to all the things they need to connect to, like education, work for work opportunities, social opportunities, cultural opportunities, grocery stores, and just daily recreation. I'd love to see that through, and I, it's in good hands. Michael Kaufman, great guy. He's, a, he's our consultant project manager, brilliant guy. He's gonna continue to run it as a consultant. It's in great hands. It'd be fun to see that through. So again, uh, you're from
0: California. Your wife is in New York, yeah, but you still are going to consider Indianapolis your home. You're going to continue. You're going to teach here. As you say, all your friends are here.
1: So you will continue to work in
0: Indianapolis.
1: Yes. so So Indianapolis is my home base and I'll be spending, you know, half time ish with my wife in New York City. Her mom, my mother-in-law, also lives in Indianapolis. So my wife needs to come to Indianapolis, if not to see me, because I'll be in New York enough, but she needs to come see her mom. So she'll, and she has a lot of friends here too. But, um, um, and, you know, and things can change, you know, and, you know, things can change in a year or two, but I, I see for the long term, Indianapolis is my home base. I see for the long term that I'll be here roughly about half the time. And I will be still involved in the community.
0: Well, I know that we, uh, as an editorial board at IBJ, I think one of our missions is to cultivate big ideas. And so if you have any more big ideas,
1: all right, (laughs) please come and see us. I still, even though I'm not the CEO of CICF, I can have access to the IBJ editorial board. You can call me. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Mason, thank you. Uh, This was very fun and a great privilege. Thank you thanks again
0: to brian Payne, and folks before you get on with the rest of your week there are a few stories from the latest issue of ibga i want to bring to your attention first up the republican dominated legislature has given indianapolis a way to raise money for downtown's post-pandemic revitalization but there appears to be little chance the democratic city leaders will pursue it at least before november's city election Taylor Wooten and Peter Blanchard explain their reluctance. Also in this week's issue, Dave Lindquist profiles the new CEO of Indiana Block Expo. And Greg Weaver reports that business executives are rethinking annual performance reviews and the frequency of their employee feedback. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thank you for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.